You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Radical Australia on 3CR. Today's program features discussion of mental health. If you require mental health support, contact Lifeline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114. Now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door Beat out old trouble on drum Beat out old trouble on drum Beat out old trouble on drum And kick all trouble out the door Beat me that rhythm on the drum And kick old trouble out the door Kick him 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 out the door Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR This program streams on 3cr.org.au It is also podcast My name is Joseph Toscano, Kelly Whitworth is our wonderful producer who makes it all happen. And once again, we have a new guest to dissect psychologically and physically. How are you there, Matthew Costigan? I'm very well, thanks, Joe. It's lovely to be with you. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, Matt, I thought you told me you had an interesting life, and I thought, well, if you've got an interesting life, we're interested. If you've got a boring life, I'll make it interesting. How does that sound? I reckon you can make anything interesting, Joe. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. The check's in the mail, Matt. Now, uh, <laughs> now just, just to orientate our listeners, what year were you born? I was born in 1975. Right, okay, 75. So that, yeah, that's, you're not 46, you're not too old, you're not too young. You're in the middle, as they say. Yeah, actually, my birthday's coming up soon on 12, 12th of June, so I'm 46. You know, 46, so you want... So I'm going to have to send you a present now, haven't I? Because when I see you next, I have to give you something, aren't I? If it's your birthday, <laughs> you, you, like, know, I it back. you know. You know. I know you, you turned up at Lars. Get uh, you know, poor old Lars didn't get away. He, he's refused permission to leave the country currently. Oh, really? They didn't. They didn't give him um, yeah. an exemption at this stage because of the COVID nineteen lockdown, I reckon. But uh, he's working on it again, so hopefully he'll get out. So, but uh, oh, I don't think he made it up just to have lunch with us. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's the first thing you can remember about being on planet Earth, Matt? Oh, geez, uh, I wasn't expecting that question. The first thing I remember, I guess, um, well, one of my 
earliest memories, I guess, um, if I had a bit more time, I'd be able to think of something different, but was actually playing golf at the Gerildery Golf Club. What? And it was the first time I'd ever played golf. I was up there with my family because my mum had an uncle who lived in Gerildery. He, he worked on the land up there. And uh, because golf was such a big part of my life for such a long time, it's not anymore, but it was for a long time, um, and that was my first hit of golf. I, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that. I'll, I'll, the historians may correct me, but um, but um, yeah. So I, I can I can clearly remember playing golf up at uh, up at the Drillery Golf Club <laughs> on the sand greens and uh, yeah. and sparse fairways, very flat, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't a top ten golf course in the world, that's for sure. But um, but I, I and I've, I've, I can even uh, envisage photos of of that round with me in my little shorts and uh, whacking a golf ball around for the first time. That's amazing. I've, I've interviewed over 500 people on Radical Australia over the last decade, and you're the first one whose first memory is playing golf. How old were you? I reckon I would have been about seven or eight, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like, like I said, if, if I had a bit more time, I could probably think of something earlier, but, but that's, that's just something that really stands out because it was a real... Right. I sort of fell in love with golf that day, and right, um, right. And, uh, and, uh, and and that was sort of the, the, the start of my obsession with right. it, which lasted for quite a while. I'm not obsessed with it now. I'm still interested in it, but right. but I've sort of um, moved away from that um, oh, very right. conservative, uh, capitalistic, um, you know, power right. and money. I reckon it's the best. It's the best sport in the world. You don't get injured normally, do you? Well, that's right. Well, it is a great sport. I, I still love the game. I, I just don't play it that much anymore because I'm just sick of the people who, who, who I have to associate with. So, um, <laughs> so, but it is a great game. It's a, it's a game you can play for life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful mix of power and finesse and mental strength and, and, and tactics and all that sort of stuff. So um, I'm, st- I'm still a big fan of golf. Golf at its purest is just a wonderful game, absolutely. And, right. and I'd like to get back into it one day. Yeah, I know a 96-year-old man who still plays. I think it's the Arabend Golf Club. Yeah, yeah, I've played there. Yeah, yeah. He's 96 and he still goes out once a week. He says what keeps him alive. It's something to yeah, look yeah, forward absolutely. to. Yeah, Now, um, are your parents still alive? Uh, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, um, but my mum's still alive, although I'm estranged from her. I don't want anything to do with her. That's fair enough. Tell us about your dad. What type of person was he? Well, dad came from good Irish Catholic stock. Um, my family on my dad's side has been here for generations, so we've got roots in Australia. Um, but he was from an Irish Catholic family, and uh, and he was he was the oldest of eight kids. Uh, they were brought up in Preston. Um, and uh, two of his brothers became priests. They later left, left the priesthood, and two of his sisters, my aunts, became nuns and are still nuns. One one of them has passed away now. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and Dad became he worked in a bank initially, but then he he studied uh, teaching and he went on to become a teacher and a school principal at a state school in St Kilda. That, that was his last position before he retired. Right. So, uh, have you got any brothers and sisters? I've got a younger brother and an older sister, but uh, you don't have things any... are a little bit strange oh, right. there. Well, we won't go down too. that path. We, we <laughs> won't. Well, look, all families are the same. There's always issues in families and there's problems. Yeah, and yeah, people... yeah. My, my, 
you know, we know we won't go down that path. But because you know, yeah. so everybody's got their issues with their families. I mean, I've got issues. Everybody's got issues. That's the way. That's yeah, life. You yeah, know, yeah. because yeah. you're born into a family doesn't mean you have to like people in that family. A lot of people make yeah. that mistake. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't get to choose your family, right? No, exactly. At least you, you know, you got a choice regarding your friends. Yeah, that, that is a good saying. Now, um, where did you go to primary school? Did you go to preschool? I went to uh, Eleanora kindergarten for two years, actually. I did two years at, uh, at preschool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know whether that was because I got held back or, or what. No, actually, to be honest, I think the reason was I, because I'm a June baby, yeah. I was right in the middle of, like, I was almost yeah. the, the previous year, but they decided to hold me. So instead of being one of the youngest in the previous year, I was one of the oldest in the following year, yeah. if you know what I mean. Do you think that was a good move? So, you think that was a good move? Do you think that helped you? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I haven't really thought too much about it, um, but um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it really helped me back. I mean, when I started primary school, I was quite. I was kind of ahead of the other kids um, academically and all and all that sort of stuff. So it probably gave me a bit of an advantage rather than being back in the pack or maybe even a little bit behind if I'd started a year earlier. So it probably wasn't a bad decision. And, and you know, I, I finished, you know, I, I don't really think about it too much. You know, once you... I remember when, when I was finishing high school, you know, in year 12 and it was a bit of a grind and uh, and I, I remember I remember thinking then, geez, I wish... Well, I wish I'd already had this out of the way and over and done with. But um, but but now, now that I'm a long way removed from... Those um, those high school years, I, I don't think it had too much uh, impact mm. really on, right. on my life. So, what yeah. was what was primary school like? Uh, primary school was great for me. I went to St John Vianney's, which is a Catholic primary school in Parkdale, mm. uh, in Great Prep, and then my parents moved me out of um, of that school because they didn't like the grade one teacher. So they moved me into Parkdale <laughs> Primary State School. Yeah, they, yeah, she was a real piece of work, this, this grade one teacher, apparently. So, um, right. Uh, so, well, she was such a piece of work, you've just blanked her from your mind because you didn't remember her. So. Well, I, I, nev- I never got taught by her because they moved me out before I, before I got to grade one. And oh. at the end of grade prep, they moved me into, into Parkdale Primary a, a State School. So, right. yes. And... Um, I had a great time at primary school. I I was I was pretty good academically. They even thought of pushing me up a year at one stage, and uh, I was I was right into sports. I just loved my sports, and I was I was I was quite quite good at them. And I had uh, I had a, had had a lot of friends, and uh, it was it was a wonderful time at primary school, actually. Right. Remember that first golf game you uh, told us about at the beginning of the program when you were seven? Do you think you were hooked from the word go or? was actually although at that age I was trying everything I was trying all sports you know football and cricket and uh, table tennis and basketball and 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 all, all sorts of things so um, I, I think I just thought oh here's another sport that I reckon I can do pretty well and uh, and you know I, I didn't realize at that time when I played that first game that it was going to um, lead to a professional career for a little while um, as it turned out, but um, I wasn't thinking in those terms. But um, oh. I just—I I think I just thought, oh, here's another sport. I love sports, yeah. and um, it's another—it's another thing that I can do. And 
and and I thought I could do it all right too. Did you did you continue to play um, golf in primary school? Did you take it up in primary school or not? Um, I, I played a little bit, but I really got into it when I was in. I think in grade six I started to really get into it, and around grade six, year seven, when I went, I went to St Bede's College in Mentone, the Catholic um, high school, mm. and it was around about that. Grade six, year seven. It might have even been over the summer holidays of, of between grade six and, and or maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure. Jesus, it's a while ago now. But um, mm. it was around about that time that I really got into golf, and I ended up joining a private golf club when I was um, in year eight. I, think I must have been thirteen when I joined that, mm. and, and and that's when the obsession really started. And, that, and that's when football and cricket and basketball and everything sort of fell away, and I just focused solely on on golf and. Uh, and I got to a reasonable standard, and I tried to make a living out of it. But it's, no, it's, let's, let's really go back. Yeah, we'll get to that stage later on. So, if I yeah. came, if I came down to your place and opened the door, would the wall be festooned with golf ribbons? No, 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 no. I've got a set of golf clubs here, but that's it. I don't have any golf posters or anything like that up on the. Up well, on how about the all the trophies? You, how about all the trophies you won as a kid? Oh, trophies! Yeah, no. ribbons and trophies. If I oh, if, sorry, sorry, I misheard. Um, I've I've got a I've got a box in the in the wardrobe with right um, with like the rest of us. <laughs> I've got an athletic box in the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. The, what is it? The uh, yeah, we've all we've all got our little stash of uh, ribbons and trophies somewhere for something. Right, that's right. Yeah, yes. so I, it's, it's so it's so hard to throw them away, isn't it? Well, but, it is because um, it reminds. I don't really want to display them because they're. They're kind of not that really. They're not that big a deal, really. But uh, but I just can't throw them away, so I keep them stored in a in a dusty box in the in the wardrobe. Right. So if I go rifling through your drawers, I'll find them. Yes. Okay. Yes, good. All right. I know where to look. None of them are worth any money, are they? The collector's item. No, no I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how did you go academically at high school? Uh, I I did okay. Um, in year twelve, I ended up with a B plus average. Um, That's pretty good. In the B, BCE, as it was, and I don't know what it's called now, but uh, I think I, from memory, I got one hundred and thirty-four points out of I think it was one hundred and sixty-four in those mm. days. So yeah. Yeah. it was about a B plus average. I was very good at the humanities. I was very good at English. I was A plus in English, right. but I really fell away with maths. Right. I was I, I was no good at, at mathematics, and I, I was I was good for the first up until about year nine or ten, and then. I just stopped absorbing, and I hit the wall. and And in year twelve, I thought, well, they say that they take the first four subjects and then ten percent of your fifth subject. So I just thought, well, math is going to be my fifth subject. It's only worth ten percent. I'm not even going to try. Right. So, right. but I passed. I passed. I was good enough to pass. But um, right. Do you think? Do you but, think? Um, yeah, do you think your golf obsession kind of? Uh pushed aside your academic ambitions during that period? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. I, I wasn't really much interested in school, and I, I didn't... You know, at, at primary school, I had a lot of friends, and I was involved in a lot of things, but then I was a bit of a late developer as well, physically. So at, at high school, you know, when, when boys... It was a boys' school, and boys start to, you know grow hair and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I, I was left a little bit little bit little bit behind. Yeah, I'm a bit shocked there. I'm a bit shocked you I think I think you're the first guest again, once again, who's told me that boys grow hair. <laughs> well they do, you know. It's a, it's a problem. Breaking news. 
breaking news. Yeah, this is this is this is this is uh, awesome. So, how much how much time yeah. were you spending on the golf course? Oh well, in in high school, from from about year nine and ten onwards, I, I would go down uh, to the golf course before school, and I'd get up early and ride ride my bike down to the golf course in the morning, and then I'd be straight back there after school on on my bike. The, the, the golf course wasn't too far from the school, and um, and uh, so I just uh, I, I just I was just obsessed with it, and I just played every minute I could. And but I also kept up with my homework. I, I was a diligent student. I didn't mm. I didn't uh, you know I did all my assignments and all that sort of stuff. And right. um, and I had a, had a natural ability in English, as I as I mentioned. So I, I, I was able to do quite, and I quite enjoyed English. So I, I was able to do quite well in that. But but the other subjects, I mean, I, I was diligent. But but again, you know, I, I was. There's no doubt if, if I hadn't been so obsessed with golf, I would have been able to focus more on my studies and I would have been able to get better marks. But um, mm. but I was just you know following my my heart and my dreams. And um, mm. so what were your dreams then? What were your dreams as when you left? Well, high I, I just wanted to be a, I just wanted to play golf. I just wanted to be a pro golfer. And, and like mm. I'd, I'd watch the big tournaments on the television early in the mornings from America and and uh, Britain and and all that sort of stuff. And and that's that's what I wanted to do. That that was my dream. I I had no dreams of, or no desires to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. So you so you had no plan um, B, no plan B. Not not really. No no no. I didn't really. So no, um, right. yeah. So yeah. so what did you do no. once you left high school? Uh, well, I did get into uni. I got into a business management course of all things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. But I, I immediately deferred that, and and uh, just so I could concentrate for a, a year playing golf full time, I got a I got a uh, a, a casual job um, delivering newspapers in the morning uh, in in the car that I had. I just turned eighteen, so I uh, I got this job delivering delivering the news, the Herald Sun, and throwing you know wrapping them up in plastic and throwing them under the lawns of, yeah. of the houses. So, but that was great because I'd, I'd be finished by you know maybe six or seven o'clock in the morning and I've done my day's work. I'd be up at three thirty, but I'd, I'd be finished by six or seven. And then I, and then I just have the rest of the day to, um, to not, not just play golf, but practice golf, like get on the driving range and, and work on my swing. And, uh, I was, I was, I was quite dedicated and, and quite disciplined. But also at that age, you're starting to discover alcohol and women and, and all that sort of stuff and part and nightclubs and all that sort of stuff. So, so there was certainly a bit of that as well. Mm. But um, golf was but, your, uh, golf was your number one bride. That that, that 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 was what I wanted to make a career out of. And then yeah. after after I, I deferred for a year, and then I went back. I started uh, uni, my uni course after that year off, after that gap year, and I lasted maybe two or three months. And mm-hmm. then I and I I just um, I, I just didn't I didn't like it. I I didn't I was having trouble making friends there, and I. I wasn't really that interested in the subjects that we were studying, and um, and so I, I just I just chucked it all in. So uh, right. my my dad wasn't too happy, you know, being an educator himself. Mm. He wasn't. Uh, he, he didn't he didn't give me too much grief about it. He wasn't a very authoritarian type, mm. um, yeah. you know. Mm. Uh, he, he was. He just wanted to see me enjoying myself and happy. So he, he wasn't yeah. too bad about well, it. But he was definitely yeah. a bit disappointed. I chucked yeah. in the uni. Well, parents are always like that, you know. They always want you to have a plan b i remember when i was a kid i wanted to be an archaeologist and my parents kept saying to me there's no money in archaeology 
he needs he needs he needs something you need to do something else so when did you really get involved in golf uh, you said you got to a professional status how did that happen well i played um you know i left school uh, i would have been 18 when i when i left school and um, apart from those two or three months at uni i played golf and just worked part-time jobs uh, delivering papers and in a, and in a, and in, a, in a golf retail chain as well. I did that for a little while too, mm. until um, until what? And I had some success as an amateur. I, I, I had some good results, and I was one of the top players in Victoria at least. Mm-hmm. And um, and then um, in the year two thousand, so I would have been twenty four, going on twenty five. I decided to do a traineeship or or an apprenticeship in in golf, and um, and so that involved three years of working in a pro shop, and uh, and doing some study and uh, you know working for less than minimum wage, just an apprentice's wages. But um, but I but that that was sort of a bit of a backup. I sort of even though I had some success as an amateur golfer, um, I sort of started to realise you know. There's some guys here, my contemporaries, my peers, who are a hell of a lot better than me, mm. and uh, you know I, I, I need I need something I need I need a backup plan here. That, that's when I realised that. So I went and worked for a uh, for a couple of years at probably the most conservative um, golf club in Melbourne. Not the Royal Melbourne. Um, not Royal Melbourne Metropolitan, actually. The Metropolitan, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There, there, there's some real pieces of work in in that place, and I, I, I hated. It. I got so, I was, but I, I, because it was, it's one of the top, you know, so-called top golf courses yeah. in golf clubs in Melbourne. I, yeah. I sort of thought, what a wonderful opportunity this is. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to make the most of this. And then when I wasn't enjoying it, rather than sort of leave and do something and find another place to work, I, I sort of, I, I kind of blamed myself, and I thought, right. There must be something wrong with me. This, this, this is like because they, they they hold up their golf club as like you know the best golf club in Melbourne, and and but I I hated it there. I hated I hated the members to be honest. Right. Um, well, what, what, what did you not, hate? Not all of them. Not now, all what, of them. What, what, what did you? What I mean, it's not about individuals. What did you hate about it? Just the, just the conservative nature. It was oppressive in there. Right. The, the management mm. and the members. It was all Sir and Mister and, right. and all this sort of stuff and fakeness it was just so fake right. um you know you, you're just so sub, subservient to these to these members and um mm. i mean when you when you work in a, in a retail shop which is basically what it was you know that you're there to serve the customer mm. they, they don't have to go that extra few yards and make you feel even more subservient like a slave right. to them that that, that and, and and that that really um that really had i, I was miserable there um because on one hand, I was thinking, I'm at Metropolitan Golf Club. What a wonderful place to work, and you know, and 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 do it, do an apprenticeship. But on the other hand, I was thinking, I, I just, I just hate this place. It's just horrible. So how long did you so, last? How long did you last? About two years, and then I got the sack. Right. <laughs> which, which <laughs> I think I think they realised. Maybe they realised <laughs> you, yeah, you weren't being well, respectful enough, Matt. I was probably sacked justly because I wasn't doing a very good job, just because I was so miserable and I and right. and, and the demands on me were so big. But I actually got sacked illegally 
right. he did it illegally that my boss so um right. so I've got a bit of a uh, a bit of a grudge against him still all right that's fair enough so was this the end of your golfing aspirations no well then because it's a three year apprenticeship that I was undertaking and I did mm. about two years at metropolitan and then I went on I, I, when I got a sack from metropolitan I got um I was I was kind of out of work for a little while, and I worked a little bit at uh, at another at a, just a, an off course golf retail chain, and then I got a job at Brighton Public Golf Course, mm-hmm. and just the change in in the culture of, of those two places to go from this most conservative private of private golf clubs to a public golf facility, and I, I really enjoyed working at Brighton Golf Course mm-hmm. there because. Because it's a welcoming, it's an opening place. It's it's it's, it's open to all, all comers. You know, come one, come all, and and we just wanted as many people through as possible. Not just from a business perspective, but that was just the the mentality and the culture mm. of 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 the place. You know, it, you know, kids' clinics and uh, women's clinics, and uh, and you know, there was no, there was a little bit of a dress code, but it wasn't nearly as strict. As, uh, as as at Metropolitan and, and some of the other private golf clubs around the place, so um, so I, I spent a year there at Brighton Golf Course and I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I did quite well with my academic work in that last year of the apprenticeship, and uh, and even my playing improved just because I was in a better space mentally, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was enjoying my life and and my work. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed that last year, and, and if I ever went back to golf, I don't think I ever will go back and work in the golf industry. But if I did, it would be at, at a public golf golf facility. I, I wouldn't go back to a private golf club. Could you no explain? Way. Could you explain to our listeners this this concept of public golf and private golf clubs? Um, do you know how they, this developed, or? Well, well, the public golf courses are. It's public land, so it's, it's right. they're, they're run by the council, um, or, or they're sorry, I should say they're owned by the council. They usually contract out the management of it to a private company, but but it's still it's still a it's still a, a, a council-owned property. Whereas the private golf clubs, are, you know, that that's private property, and um, and they're very exclusive, and then and they're not they're not very welcoming, especially if you're not the you know. The, the right sort of person, you yeah. know, in their eyes, mm-hmm. um, and you know, they're they're exclusive places. Whereas the the public golf courses uh, are much more welcoming, and uh, and it's just it's just a completely different um, mentality around public golf than, than private mm-hmm. golf. And the most famous golf course in the world, St Andrews in Scotland, is a public golf course. Mm-hmm. So. Um, whereas, and maybe the second most famous is Augusta National, which is the most private of private golf courses in the US. I've actually been to both. Right. I had to break into Augusta National to, right. to get a look at it, jump jump the fence and break into it on, on a trip there to the US in 99. Right. Whereas I went to St. Andrews and we just pulled up in the car, parked the car and just wandered on the golf course and wandered around like it was a park. Right. It, was, it was just completely different, um, uh, you know, Culture and mentalities around um, mm. around around the the two ways of doing it. So, um, so, what did you do once you finished your apprenticeship? Uh, well, I tried to go and make a living out of playing tournaments, um, small tournaments, 
And I did sort of okay, but not that great. I didn't do well enough to think, oh, I think this, I could do this for the rest of my life. I thought, I'm, I'm not good enough no. to do this. So I took a job um, teaching and working in the shop up at Elstonwick Golf Course, which, which is closed down now, but that was another public golf facility um, up there on the corner of Glen Huntley and the Peen Highway. It's now a park, but... Um, and I would uh, work in the shop a bit, which was okay because you're dealing with the public. You know, you're not, you don't, you don't have to call them sir and ma'am and Mister and, and all this bullshit. Mm. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. Um, Keep going. Keep going. That's fine. And uh, and um, and I would go around to uh, schools in the area and do clinics for the kids and all that sort of stuff. So I, I quite enjoyed uh, that, uh, and and the money was okay. So. Mm. Um, so it was nice to sort of be making a, a sort of a normal sort of a wage there for the first time in my life. This was in um, 2003, 2004. Um, you'd been, you'd but been then I, you actually started to earn real money when you were nearly 30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did, you feel, yeah. how did you feel as, you know, your golfing career you think is coming to an end and it's not going to be your livelihood and you've spent so much time was that a period of crisis for you? Um, well, it, it, it was a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was actually just—I was just getting to that when before you, um, before you, 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 you I so rudely and, before I so rudely yeah, interrupted. I, I, yeah. going, I almost said that joke. <laughs> 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 no, um, well, you know, so I found myself um, teaching doing kids' clinics up at Elstonwick in 2003 and 2004. And, uh, and while that was okay, and, and uh, I was able to move out of home and, uh, and, and rent, a, rent a unit and, and so a bit of independence and all that sort of stuff, so that was all good. But at the same time, there was this feeling that it wasn't what I got into golf to do. You know, like growing up as a, as a kid, I wanted to, um, uh, you know, win the Masters and, and the British Open and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, playing the big tournaments and, and, and be one of the top players in the world. That was my dream. And, and to, to be teaching, and, and this is no, no disrespect to, to teaching pros, mm. um, you know, m- m- most PGA pros are lovely fellas, mm. actually. They're, 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 good, they're good people. And, um, but it, it wasn't what I got into golf to do. And, uh, and so... Once, once again, I decided to chuck that in and go over to London on a um, on a two year working holiday visa and work in a pub All over right. there. I did that in mid two thousand and four, and and that really was and getting away from that golf scene and going over to London and, and meeting more open minded, less conservative um, fellow travellers and uh, you know people just having a, have, just out to have a good time and uh, and so on. That that really and and going to another country obviously as well. It really, um, it really opened my eyes, and, and that was that was probably the start of my, uh, I guess, uh, informal education that has led me to being talking to an anarchist today, mm. and uh, and mm. my, my my descent into anarchism slash hell. <laughs> well, on that on that note, uh, I just let remind listeners this is Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR the program is streaming on 3cr.org.au and you can actually access the podcast in the next day or so by going to 3cr.org.au this is 855 on your AM dial 
And don't forget that uh, Radical Australia's uh, Radio Fon uh, Collection Day will be on the 16th when Kelly and myself will be begging for money and we'll be doing excerpts of some of our more memorable interviews. Uh, is that a COVID-19 cough there, uh? No, 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 it's okay. All right, you just just try no. to drink some water while I'm uh, doing a station announcement, yeah, yeah, exactly. and you choked on it. Yeah. So, what was it like serving in a pub? Was it like serving in a golf golf uh, shop? Oh no, it was much more interesting. The, the people you get in the pub are much more interesting than, than the golfers you get. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the, and the thing was, I um, I lived above the pub as well. With uh, there was probably seven or eight of us who lived, you know, in shared accommodation upstairs above the pub. So. Um, it was it was like being in the Big Brother house. <laughs> and so, but, um, but I met people from other other parts of the world um, who worked there, and also who came into the pub. And you know, when when you're the barman, you you, you learn a lot working behind a bar because you just get to have these little interactions, and maybe maybe sometimes longer interactions with these random people. And you meet a whole range of people, especially in London, where where I was. <laughs> And in the area of London where I was, it was a real mixed bag. Where were you? Um, I, I was working in a pub in Chelsea. Oh, right, right, right. Which, which get... is a very rich, it's, it's a very rich suburb, but um, I was down sort of the, the Fulham end of Chelsea. So, <laughs> so it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't the old money down there. So we had, uh, it, there, was, there was a lot of money in, in that area, uh, but um, a lot of it was new money, like... Um, like there was, there yeah, was Russian, some, uh, ma- Russian mafia, mafia. I understand. Oh uh, no, that's, they they tended to stick down more in the old money part of, right. of, uh, yeah, of they London. Want, they wanted to integrate themselves. Yeah. So, uh, did you ever get used to the warm beer in London? Oh, uh, I never really had too much of the warm beer. I stuck to the lager. At least that's the lager. Yeah. So, uh, so did this open any new roads to you in terms of travel? did i ended up um i got um in january of 2005 i got invited to a golfing friend's uh wedding in hawaii and i was obviously in london at the time and so i i accepted i said yes absolutely i'll be there absolutely i would, wouldn't miss that but um i thought if i'm gonna if i'm gonna go all the way from london to hawaii for a wedding i might as well make a bit of a trip of it and do some travelling at the same time to make it worthwhile rather than just fly to Hawaii and fly back straight away. That seems like a bit of a waste of money. Um, but I didn't want to go to the US because I'd been there before on a golfing trip uh, in 1999. Um, so, and because I was just earning, you know, pub wages, um, I didn't have that much money, although the pound is a strong currency to travel on. And so I thought I didn't really want to go to the US. I'd been there before. I didn't really like it that much, and uh, and it was expensive as well. So I thought I'll go somewhere cheap. Where's the cheapest place to go to from Hawaii? Well, South America. So I flew down to um, Venezuela after the wedding uh, into Caracas, which is the capital city there, and I made my way from um, from Venezuela across to Colombia. Um, <coughs> Excuse me, oh, I'm coughing. Excuse me, you went to Colombia in 2005? Yes, yeah. Didn't anybody tell you what was happening in Colombia in 2005? <laughs> well, look, I, I, I'd, heard all the, I'd heard all the usual stories about Colombia, but, 
But I had a look into it, and there's about 50 million people that live in Colombia. Right. So there's a hell of a lot of people not getting murdered. Right. There must, there must, I figured there must be some sort of civil society there. Right. And, and anyway, I got there. I, I caught the bus overland from, from, um, from yeah. Venezuela all the way to Bogota in Colombia. Yeah. And, and, um, and I got to Bogota. Bogota is a lovely city, especially the old part, the La Candelaria, they call it. That's, that's the old, um, the original part of, of Bogota. And, um, you know, I just, I just loved it there. I, I spent about um, two to three months in there. I, I, I maxed out my visa. I can't remember whether it was a 60-day visa or a 90-day visa. But, um, and, you know, and in all my time there, I didn't witness one act of violence at all. Right. So, and, so nobody, you know, nobody thought you were a CIA agent, did they? <laughs> you maxed out your visa. You were there for three months in Colombia during the, the period where they're having an intense struggle with FARC. Yeah, well, well, but but the thing was, I probably I probably got a little bit lucky because I think that when I got there in two thousand and five, the reputation of the country didn't match the reality mm. because a guy called Alvaro Uribe got in a few years before two thousand and five. And he was um, he 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 um, he really went hard on the FARC, and because they, they they just about took over the whole country at one stage, mm-hmm. um, along with other rebel groups. I, I, when I say rebel, I actually mean uh, drug trafficking corporations. They're, they're not rebel groups; they're drug trafficking corporations, mm-hmm. and they're universally loathed throughout Colombia. Mm-hmm. So please don't call them rebels. But um, but Uribe got um, he he cracked down hard on the fuck and, and like he, he was a very militaristic president. And while I'm a I'm a pacifist, but um, you know I think I think this is a case of a just war actually. And he pushed them right back out of the out of you know away from the main areas of the country. Mm-hmm. And he really improved the security situation a lot there. So he, he had an approval rating of something like 90% right. at one stage because mm-hmm. of what he was doing. It wasn't because of his economic policies. He was... Well, he was providing he security. He was a conservative politician, yeah. so he was, he was, he was a capitalist. Um, but but just, just the improvements in the security of the, of the country um, were, were just, um, you know, it was, it was a minor miracle. What he what he did, and he was massively popular. He even um, got a he, he got a second term as president, mm. and he continued on with those policies. And he's still in, he's still a senator today. Actually, he's still very influential in Colombian society, in Colombian mm. politics. Mm. Um, but um, so, so you know, what happened? Did your visa run out, and they showed you the door and said, "Go go home, boy," or what happened? Oh no 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 no! I, I left. I left. I made sure that I, I was going to leave um, before my visa ran out. I didn't want any problems with. I didn't want to end up in in a jail cell in Colombia. That's, that's for sure. So I, I abided by the rules and I, I left the country before my visa expired. Yeah, did, yeah. You, did you have any money to go anywhere else? Or did you go back to Australia or London? Um. Well, I when I, when I went back, I, went, I, had, I had to get back to Caracas in Venezuela to fly back to the US. And so I caught the bus back from Colombia the way I came, all the way back to Caracas, and then I went to um, then I flew to LA for uh, three or four days, and then I flew from LA back to London and and uh, and picked up my old job at the pub in Chelsea. 
Right. Did you see more violence in LA in three days than you saw in two months in Colombia? <laughs> exactly the same amount, actually. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So how long did you last in London on that, in that pub job? I was there about two years, but uh, it ended badly. Um, it, I ended up being constructively dismissed. I've, I've always constructively dismissed. You've got this reputation. What does that mean? What did you do? Did you fight with the owner or something? Uh, no, well, what happened was, uh, towards the end of my time there at the pub there in London, I, I had a two-year visa, so I knew that my time was coming up and I'd have to go home. Mm. Um, and uh, and I found out that they were uh, paying us illegally. They were, were wage theft, basically. They were, they were underpaying us. And um, and so I looked into it, and uh, and anyway, I, I, I brought it up with the manager, and, uh, and as soon as I did that, they just... Constructively, when you're constructively dismissed, that means that that the, that management or the boss or whoever just makes life unbearable for the employee yeah. in order to force them out. So mm. you, you're being sacked, but not kind of but, not but openly. In a, it, yeah. you construct you're constructively dismissed. So mm. so that that's what happened there. So I ended up just walking out of that pub after the treatment that I copped when I raised the. Um, you know the the fact that we were being um, underpaid, underpaid mm. paid, paid illegally um, by the. So by you the gave you gave owner. you gave what almost four years of your life to that pub, and when you raised the question that you were underpaid, they got rid of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they they, they made like they attacked me, they bullied me, and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. They just made my life. It was just mm. that made it unbearable, and I, mm. I, I couldn't go on. But I did take them to the employment tribunal in London, and I got ten thousand dollars out of them. So good that, on that you. was pretty sweet. Good on you. Yeah. Was that a lot of work and effort on your part? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, oh, it, it was, but I, I quite enjoy that sort of thing. I've, I've had a lot of these <laughs> battles in my life. So I, <laughs> look, look, uh, Matt. Just to let you know, there's no point taking us to court because three uh, CR hasn't got any money to pay you. That's why we're having a radio <laughs> fine. Okay, so don't get any ideas. <laughs> So, so, right, well, so well, what? Well, you, you just make sure you don't hang up on me first, then. Well, I can't promise you that, Matt. Who knows what's going to happen on this <laughs> okay. program? So, did you had enough money to take a first-class ticket back to Australia, did you? Well, uh, no. Well, what, what happened was um, when I walked out of the pub, um, I, I kind of couch surfed for a little while um, while I was I was still I was still pursuing this case against. The, uh, the management and the owner of this pub. And um, in one email to him, I accused him of being a criminal, <laughs> uh, which he was. And um, and he sent me back this very threatening email. And, uh, and I uh, wet my pants <laughs> because... Because because there's there's some there's some dodgy street yeah. kid types in in London who yeah. who used to hang out at the pub and I, I and this guy you know he's yeah. a Londoner he he, he knows people yeah, I, look, I, he didn't he didn't, I, I he didn't mention the Cray brothers and pigs in the email to you did he no, no, not, not the Crays no <laughs> no all no, right no, fair no, enough good no so you decided no. to come home did you yeah so I came home but then I kept pursuing I, I kept uh, in contact with this owner. And um, I, I ended up um, flying back to London via Colombia because I, I met a girl in Colombia as well. There, there was so much stuff going on at this time, Jay. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Uh, no, 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 no. 
you met a girl. We don't want to know. You met a girl. That's all right. So you went yeah. back to London via Columbia. Did she accompany you to London or not? No, she didn't. She, she, Colombians can't get out of the country. Well, it's very. Oh, it's a bit like Australia today, and poor old Lars. They're a third world country. They, they, yeah. First world countries don't want third world country people, no. citizens in here. So, right. um, so she wasn't able to accompany me. But um, so anyway, so I flew from Australia to Colombia to see this girl, and I, I, I don't want to go too much into personal stuff, but. Um, but anyway, I, I, had, I had to sort of, um, we, had, we had some issues there that we had to sort out. So I sorted them out, and then I went from Columbia back to London. I put a dossier into the Employment Tribunal um, against this. It was quite a lengthy one, too, um, detailing all, all this guy's crimes and, uh, and how he'd done me wrong. And, um, and then I flew back to Australia. Um, this, this, this owner contacted me not long afterwards and he offered me um, two thousand pounds just to settle straight away. I said no, I don't want that. I, I want I want this guy to front the employment tribunal and 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 face justice for what he'd done. Mm. And anyway, about a week later he just said, Oh look I'll just give you the four thousand pounds. You, you, you know So he, he completely capitulated. It was a slam dunk case. Yeah. And uh, and I, oh. I was really proud of that. Right. So let's get back Sorry. to your because we've only got about fifteen minutes. Let's get back to your life in Australia. You eventually get back to Australia minus your Colombian girlfriend. So what's going on now? Mm. Mm. Well, well, when I when I got back to Australia after um, after putting in that dossier to the employment tribunal in London, this is when um, my um, you know, with, with, with me flying all over the world, and I had a girlfriend in Colombia, I was in trouble with, with my boss in London, and I was going all over the world, and I had all these issues and all these problems, and everything was happening. My mother decided that I was mentally ill. Mm. So she got me put in a mental ward. Right. This in is Frankston. In, in Frankston, yep. That's very difficult, very difficult. Oh, it, it, the, the mental health system does more harm than good. Mm. And uh, it's just... How long were you detained for? Two weeks. Two weeks. And, and I was basically ambushed and kidnapped to, mm. to be put in there. Mm. Um, they, they lured me there by saying, oh, we, we just want to have a chat to you about how things are going. So I went to the hospital. A couple of security guards surrounded me, pushed me into the lift, dumped me in the ward, and two weeks, you know, for the next two weeks, I'm locked up in there and I can't, I can't go anywhere. So it, it was... It was and, and, and I'm, I'm still mired in the mental health system now, 15 years later. Right. You can't get out of it. Mm. So are you, under some, are you under any orders, any forced I'm, orders? I'm on an involuntary community treatment order. Right. Could you explain to people what that is? Because people can't imagine people being put on, in this country, being put in such a situation. What is a, an involuntary community treatment order? Well, it basically, like... When you when when I when I got thrown into into the psych ward, I was on I was an involuntary patient. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I had willingly gone to the hospital to talk to these people because they said, "Oh, we just want to have a talk to you about how things are going at the moment." So I was actually my argument was that I was a volunt- I went in there voluntarily, but right. they put me in there as an involuntary patient. Mm-hmm. Now, when when they released me. They put you on a community treatment order, so you get treated in the community and right. you attend 
you attend a clinic, you know, whenever, say once right. a fortnight or once a month or whatever it might be, mm. but it's involuntary. So I, I must attend. So the, what happens if you don't attend? Uh, I haven't tested that, but I suspect they could probably put me back in hospital. They would put you back in hospital. That's what I'm trying to get to. So basically you've been yeah. under this order for 15 years. Yep. Why haven't you been able to break out of it? Have you have you because, appealed? Have you appealed? Because there is a tribunal you can appeal to. Yeah, but no, no, no. That mental health tribunal is only there to provide uh, legitimacy to what is an oppressive and fundamentally flawed system of healthcare. Mm. Mm. So that, that that's no good. I've I've tried that, but uh, right. but the the reason I'm still on it is because I've always denied that I'm mentally ill. So they say, oh well, he lacks insight. Mm. Because he lacks insight. If we let him off this order, he's not going to take his medication. He'll become unwell again. Right. You know, so it's, it's a, it's, it's, you can't escape. No. So obviously you know, this, this is really... This whole lack of insight thing is... Yeah. I'm going to say it again. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Because I have more insight into my mental well-being and my mental state mm. than anybody. I've lived with myself 24-7, 365 days a year for almost 46 years. Mm. So it's just an absolute disgrace, the mental health system. So you can't see any way out at the minute? I, I, well, the one way out is it's only, it's only in Victoria, so I could move into state or overseas and then I'm out of it. Right. But which you... is what I'm planning on doing. I'm, I'm planning on moving overseas once, once COVID settles down and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and everything. Right. So right. I, I want to move back to London. I've got, I've got some opportunities over there with some people, with some good people that I met mm. over there. So, and, and then I'll be out of it. They can't do anything then. It's, it's, only, it's only in the state of Victoria that they have this power over you. And then they can't, they can't uh, force you to stay? No, no, they no. can't force me to stay. It's, right. it's, not, it's not that restrictive. Not no. that restrictive. All right. So what have you been doing the last 15 years while you've been under this, uh, this order? Saving the world, Joe. Saving, saving the, world. the world. And how have you saved the world? You haven't done much of a job of it, but at least you're trying. Better than most people. <laughs> well, um, well, uh, I've, I, well, geez, I, I don't know. I've, I've worked a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm technically I'm employed at the moment by a, a large supermarket chain, but. I'm in another dispute with management there, and the unions are involved. Right. And hopefully they're going to get me a, a decent payout. So, so you can get your airline um, ticket out to London. Yeah, sounds good. It's, it, that's exactly right, Joe. And, and hopefully it'll be a big enough payment that I'll be able to have enough money to get set up a little bit in London. And, right. And I'm hoping that with the, um, the free trade agreement that's being negotiated at the moment between the UK and Australia, that'll make it easier for Australians to go to the UK and live and work, whereas... Mm. Before it was quite difficult, except on that working holiday visa, which is only two years. Right. But um, because they had to give priority to all the EU citizens. Right. But um, but I'm hopeful that now that they're out of the EU, which I think was a terrible decision, but it might actually work out okay for me because Australia and the UK might get some sort of a free trade agreement where Australians can can uh, easily move to the UK and and set up there and live and work and, and, and that sort of stuff over there. So right. um, so that, that's what I'm hoping to do with the payout that I get from um, from my employer. Right. And but so you've basically been um, unemployed for most of this 15 years or have you been able to pick up jobs here and there? Uh, 
for quite a lot of it, I was unemployed. Um, mm. Just because of the... Um, basically because of the mental toll that being in the mental health system took on me. You know, the, right. the, it, it, it's, it's terrible for your mental health. Um, you know, and, and I, my, my mental health hasn't suffered because I have a chemical imbalance or anything like that in my brain that needs drugs to rectify to make me okay. Mm. It suffered because, because this world is so stuffed up and the mental health system is so oppressive and, and coercive. Mm. And uh, and then and then there's family issues and all that sort of stuff that On I've had to deal that. with as well. Yes. So yes. Um, so it's it's been an absolute nightmare this last fifteen years. There, there've been some good moments, um, but um, but uh, it's it, it really has been uh, a, a nightmare. But um but um, I'm I'm getting near the, uh, the I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, and oh, uh, and I'm I'm very hopeful and optimistic about the future. So when did when did you start? Taking interest in radical ideas and politics and actions. Um, well, when I started working at that pub initially in London, and I got away from the the conservative golf club uh, environment, I, I got away and I, uh, you know, living and working in that pub, uh, and meeting you know more free sort of thinkers, more probably more down to earth people, if I can say that, and uh, and I and I. I I I buy books that I was and I just just things I just started getting interested in things outside of golf. I sort of left the golf world behind, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact I did leave the golf world behind. And I and I and so to to satisfy my intellectual curiosity, I would, I would buy I'd, I'd start just started reading interesting books, not about golf. You know, before that I was I, I just wanted to read about golf, golf, golf the whole time. But um, and then I started to get into Noam Chomsky. Mm-hmm. Who's um, who? Who's a real hero of mine? He has become, um, and uh, guys like uh, John Pilger, and there's another mob in the UK called MediaLens.org, who, um, as the name suggests, they they write critiques of the media coverage, particularly the the BBC and uh, other so you know ostensibly progressive news organisations in the UK, the Guardian, mm-hmm. um, and and and. Like that. So I started to sort of um, fall into into that world, and it just really opened my mind. And it was actually I found it quite liberating to uh, read that sort of stuff and work out how the world works. and And it and it helped me explain to myself why, for instance, why I was so miserable working at Metropolitan Golf Club. Like I couldn't work that out at the time when I was actually in in that situation, but. Um, but uh, but reading guys like Chomsky and and, and Pilger and others um, was it was, it was really interesting and like I said it was quite liberating. So so you came you came to the conclusion the problem wasn't yours the problem was the type of world we live in and it has a profound impact on the individual. And, exactly, and that's that, exactly. I couldn't have put it better, Joe. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Because in so, Australia, as you know, in Australia today, it's always that's it's always the individual that's at fault. It's never society, and you know that's why we have such a high yeah, rate of yeah, yeah, mental yeah, illness. Exactly. You know, you know, we've got the second highest rate in the Western world of medication for depression, and you, you just wonder, you really wonder, yeah. Well, I'm pleased that well, you can actually see some light at the end of the tunnel. That's really, really good to. Uh, to know. Now we've only got a few minutes left, Matt. Have you got any? Okay. Have you got any advice 
for our listeners, young and old? I mean, you've been, you know, you've had a good life. You've been to the dip, you know, the depths of depression and the heights of uh, joy. Have you got any any suggestions for listeners who may find themselves in a similar situation? Um, gee, um, <laughs> it's all right. If you haven't, it's okay. I mean, people learn um, by no, listening. No, no, I'll, I'll think of something. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's probably not your fault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 I know about that. Well, you know, this this world is really screwed up, and um, you just got to stay true to yourself. And and you you know, and if you do that, you you can do it. You can get through anything. I've I've been homeless on the streets of London and Bogota before in my life because. I just stayed true to myself. Now, some people, homelessness, and, and this is not to lessen the homelessness or anything like that, but you can do it. Like, you can get through something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and if, you, if you just stay true to yourself, things will work out okay in the end. Right. And you felt that you've stayed true to yourself during your life? Absolutely, I have. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you've paid such a, an extreme price and are still paying that price? Exactly, but but that's but that's okay because things are going to start working out for me. You know, the 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 universe will work in your favour eventually if if you if you don't sell out and um, yeah. and uh, and you just stay um, you just stay a moral person and, and educate yourself. Uh, not not necessarily by going to uni or doing tape or something like that, but just read things and be and and try and. Um, and you know, just just do a bit of um, sort of um, uh, unofficial education. Just um, just by being try try to be interested in things, hmm. and uh, and find out more about how the world works. If, if, if once you understand how the world works, then you, you're not. I, I think that's a. That, I think that's one reason why there's so many depressed people in this world because they don't understand why this why this world why why this world is so stuffed up. And then they they think this is normal, but this is not normal. What we're living in, right? This, this is not what a normal like you call this radical Australia uh, program, but we're not radical. We're normal. No, I, I, no, I actually as as well, I actually um, agree. We are normal, but they think we're radical. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish you all the oh, best. Oh, well, for... thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and and I wish you all the best for the future. And uh, I think that uh, things will work out for you. And it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, it was good of you to share your experiences, both good and bad, with our listeners. And hopefully somebody, somewhere, will get some positive positivity out of this uh, chat. Thank you very much and uh, look after yourself. No worries, Joe. Call any time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Radical Australia on 3CR Community Radio. If anything on today's program has raised concerns for you, Contact Lifeline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 
call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.